Well, hey, Chris, it's good to see you again, and I'm glad that we didn't wait a month this time in between recordings. We may be the only ones, but yeah, me too. I'm glad we didn't wait. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's jump right in, and our Old Testament text this week is, of course, from Genesis 18, and it is the Sodom and Gomorrah text, which is... Everyone's favorite text to preach. Everyone's favorite text to preach, and especially right now, right? I mean, there is, um, I'm thinking about Supreme Court decisions and potential Supreme Court decisions. I'm thinking about legislation that just passed in the House yesterday um, and is now headed to the Senate. I'm thinking about um, matters of sexuality, which churches and a lot of these very close to home are splitting or at least talking about splitting over. Um, it's maybe a story that feels um, untouchable to some and is maybe being, it's maybe a story that's being touched too much by others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, touched, touched being, I guess, the a little too apt of a metaphor. Yeah, well, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> Intentional. And we just lost every listener that was actually with us this far. <laughs> Uh, so I wanted to ask you, how do we, how do we read it? Well, I mean, my hope is that we would actually read it. I mean, I, I think the heart of the problem is I was talking last night with some folks about death and questions were coming up about this and that scripture related to, to dying and death and specifically the ways in which we've talked about Jesus dying and death. And the point I made last night, which I, I will stand by, is we end up going wrong the moment we think we know what the text says and we don't have to bother reading it again. We don't have to bother reading it carefully. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I think it's pretty much impossible to exaggerate how much damage has been done by us presuming we know what the texts say. We know what the Bible says about X, Y, and Z. We know what the Bible says as it relates to sexuality, for example. And we know what this story, Sodom and Gomorrah, is about, and we don't really have to go back and read it again. We don't have to pay attention. And this may seem extreme, but I I don't think it is. I mean, I think we always go wrong when we think we know what the text says already. Because that refusal to go back and read means that we've misremembered it somehow. Like we've internalized it and now we've exchanged what we've internalized. In other words, our interpretation with what the text actually says. And the only right way to read scripture is to keep rereading it, to Mm -hmm. go back each time with what have I missed? How have I internalized this in ways that are unfaithful to the spirit of Christ? How have I let my own spirit or the spirit of the age, the spirit of the circles that I move in, how have I let those spirits determine what the text means mm-hmm. and flattening it, flattening it into something that I now possess, right? A meaning that I've, that I've taken out of scripture and made for myself. So I, I, again, that's a long answer to your question. The short answer is if anyone's going to preach it or read it or study it, I hope they will actually read it. Yeah. Actually pay attention to what's in the text. Right. And it seems like, especially for those who claim to have the the high view of Scripture, 
to not read and reread and reread again. That seems Absolutely. to, yeah, it's like, a, to be you know, it, it, it's a kind of law that the higher our view of scripture, the lower our attention is when we read it. <laughs> like, it's like my version of Murphy's law, right? Like you, the more you talk about scripture, the more suspicious I become about whether or not you actually read the text themselves. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're almost certainly trying to, it's, it's a kind of bully pulpit approach, right? Like mm -hmm. if you, it's propaganda, keep talking about how much you love scripture. Yeah. I want to hear how do you actually read these texts and, and yes. how does your reading differ as you mature and as your situations change and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so with that, then what do you think? Well, so I think before we come to the, let me say one word about the Genesis text. Then I want to step back and look at some of the others that the lectionary gives us and then, mm -hmm. and then come back to Genesis. The first thing is in the reading for Sunday, it's actually just a section, Genesis 18, 20 to 32. It's just a section of the story that we call the Sodom and Gomorrah story. And it's really Abraham's intercession. And this, this almost always gets lost in, in our telling of the Sodom and Gomorrah story, or at least in our diatribes about the sexual promiscuity and license of our culture. We, we forget that this story about God raining down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah is a story that comes on the far side of Abraham throwing himself down in intercession for God. For for the cities against God, right? That Abraham is is doing all that he can to keep God from doing that, right? And that is almost entirely lost, I think, in the conversation, right? That Abraham is interceding. So I, before we're done, I want to come back and talk about about that that point about the intercession mm -hmm. of Abraham and how. This is, this is the way in which the righteous are known to be righteous. The righteous are known to be righteous by the way they intercede for the unrighteous. And this is why the rabbis say that Noah is the least righteous right. of, all the, of all the just because he doesn't intercede. He just builds the ark, lets God destroy the world, comes off the ark and thanks God that he and his own have been saved because of that, because he's of a his disregard for everyone who's going to be damned. He, the rabbis say that he is the least of the righteous and Abraham and Moses, of course, are the most righteous of the righteous because they refuse to be saved apart from those whom God seems ready to destroy. Right. And I, I, I think we, we should come back to that at the end, but let me kind of scale out for a moment and say that what I think is happening in Genesis 18 is an example of what, Scripture identifies as spiritual warfare. What in the language of Paul is the warfare against the powers of darkness. So Ephesians mm -hmm. 6, for example. Colossians mm -hmm. speaks about this, but also the Psalm. So let's listen to this. This is Psalm 85. No, not Psalm 85. Psalm 138. There are two Psalms available in the lectionary on Sunday. But listen to Psalm 138, which is, again, a Psalm for Sunday which we would hear alongside Genesis 18. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. I will bow down toward your holy temple and praise your name because of your love and faithfulness. 
for you have glorified your name and your word above all things. When I called, you answered me. You increased my strength within me. All the kings of the earth will praise you when they have heard the words of your mouth. And he goes on and on. Verse 7, though the Lord is high, he cares for the lowly. He perceives the haughty from afar. Though I walk in trouble, you keep me safe. So this is a psalm about relating to the Lord in the midst and in the presence of the gods. The, The one true God is our Lord, but we live, the psalmist is assuming, in the presence of many gods who are calling for us to praise them. They want us to bow toward them. They want us to glorify them. And yet the psalmist is insisting, I don't worship these other gods. I worship you. So he's in a polytheistic world, a world of many gods, but his heart is only for Yahweh. His heart is for the Lord alone. So when he says, I give thanks to you, he means you as opposed to all these other gods. Mm -hmm. And when he says, I give thanks to you with my whole heart, he means I'm not giving you part of my heart and giving other gods other parts of my heart. Right. I'm giving you my whole heart. And I'm, I'm singing your praise in the presence of the gods so that they know where my allegiances lie. Mm-hmm. I'm bowing toward your temple, refusing to bow toward theirs. All right, so this should call up you know, the story of Daniel, the story of the, the so-called Hebrew children who you know, refused to bow to this idol because of their allegiance to Yahweh, their allegiance to the God of Abraham, the, the living God, the creator, the eternal one. And he's insisting he does this because God has glorified his name and word above all things, meaning above the name and word of these other gods. And one of the proofs of this, the proofs of the truth of it, is that God in, increases our strength within us. Right. So the when I called, you answered me. This is not something that the other gods will do. They want to make demands on us, but they don't respond to us. They don't care for us in the way that God cares for us. God is the God who serves us. God is the God who washes our feet. But these gods demand our loyalty. Like we serve them. They're our masters. They dominate. God does not dominate us. Right. And the, the mark of this is that he increases our strength within us. So one of the fruits of the spirit or one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, is self-control. Where, where God is Lord in our lives, we are most ourselves. And this is another thing that differs from every other God. Every other God steals life from us, demands our allegiance, and gives us nothing in return that is truly ours. Right? And God does give us ourselves. He increases our strength within us. And so then he says, eventually, all the kings of the earth will praise you. That's what we're hoping for, is in the language of Revelation, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. But for now, there's dispute about this, right? That the Lord's rule is in dispute, and there are all kinds of gods clamoring for our allegiance. Is that is that making sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is... This is what Paul, this psalm is in, not not this psalm alone, but this psalm in particular is what Paul is taking up in Colossians and in Ephesians when he's talking about spiritual warfare, when we, we wrestle against principalities and powers. Well, I think this is for the sake of, you know, there's, this would take hours and hours of conversation to kind of work through, but just to give a kind of general framework, I think Paul 
assumes that there are evil forces, forces that are arrayed against God. And Satan is kind of the face of that rebellion against mm-hmm. God. These evil forces have turned the principalities and powers against us. So in Colossians 1, we're told that all things, visible and invisible, have been made in Christ and for Christ, and that this includes the powers. Whatever we mean by the powers, mm-hmm. we're talking about something that has been made, something created in Christ and for Christ. But because of the forces of evil, what we refer to as the devil and his angels, because of the forces of evil, these principalities and powers have been turned away from their created purpose. And now, instead of serving Christ, they often, if not always, are calling for our allegiance apart from Christ. Right. So we, we see this, you know, in, in the story of Jesus, we see this dramatized with what happens with Herod, what happens with Caiaphas, what happens and the chief priests, what happens with Pilate. But these are powers, human beings who are serving at the centers of power in their cultures, in their worlds, who are being or under the influence of the forces of evil, the forces of death, the forces of darkness, the kingdoms of this world that are out of rhythm and out of tune with the kingdom of God. And because of that, these men are overmatched, right? Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus. Caiaphas is thinking about what he has to do to protect his, you know, this place, he says. If we don't, if we don't give this man over, the Romans will come and take our place from us. Mm-hmm. So this this these powers then are not so if we have like the forces of evil, the devil and his angels, and then we have structures of existence, what Paul means by powers, that kind of shape what we value, what we appreciate, what we despise, what we aspire to, what we're afraid of, that give our cultures their distinct flavors and looks and feels. What is it that we we consider ours, our holy places, our language, our, meta- our, our, our most basic guiding metaphors. Paul is insisting that those things were made and were made in Christ for the sake of Christ, but because of evil, they've, they've turned to some other end. And in Christ, we have to make sure that we're not in allegiance to those things rather than in allegiance to Jesus. Right? So if you look at Colossians, this is the way that he lays it out. Again, keep thinking about the Psalms, right? Thinking about the gods here, not only as the demons, Satan and the devils, but also the kind of the powers. What is it that makes Americans American? Or what is it that makes it, you know, I remember Stanley Hauerwas would often talk about how he was above all a Texan, right? So what is it that makes a Texan a Texan, right? Right. Or makes the American South the American South. These are not necessarily, and in and of themselves, they're not evil, but they often are twisted or misdirected so that the force is is used for evil. It brings about something other than the will of God. Right? Um, the So in, if we look, 
Colossians 2, which is the reading for, for Sunday, Paul says, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Again, in him as opposed to in the, the movements of the powers around you, the political and social and economic forces that move. And so in our world, we talk about the market. The, the market has its own kind of vitality, its own movements. Politics, right, have their own movements. Culturally, we have movements, ways in which certain themes start to show up in our movies and our TV shows and so on. And Paul is saying, let your life be lived in the movement of Jesus, in the movements of the Spirit of Christ, not in the movements of the world. And be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Right? So the Eucharist being the center and source of our lives. And then he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, not according to Christ. So we have to connect the human tradition, and slow me down if I'm moving too fast here, human tradition, elemental spirits, as something other than the way of Jesus. So there is the way the world works, the elemental spirits of the universe, the cycle of life and death, the fact that the strong survive, right? the good die young, the, the fittest survives. Mm-hmm. Right? That those are the elemental spirits of the universe. The universe works a particular way. Right. There's a, there's a, there's a, they're not only a cycle of life and death, but there's also, as I said, the move, political and economic and sociocultural movements that dictate or seem to dictate certain outcomes. And those are what Paul means. That's what he's naming when he says they're elemental spirits of the universe, the way things go, the way things work, right? And you can either work with those things, which will mean you'll end up wealthy and powerful, or at least that's what you're striving for, right? Or you're going to live in Christ. And it's human traditions that mislead you. So let me let me give another example mm-hmm. here. When when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That's a revelation to him, right? That Jesus says, you know, you did not receive this from flesh and blood. This is the work of my father in you. So out of, out of Peter comes this confession. A revelation has come to him and out of him comes a confession that's true. But then what happens immediately after that is Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be killed. And Peter grabs him by the collar and pulls him aside and says, no, you're not. That's not what's going to happen. And we all know Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. But what we often forget to quote is that he says, get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of human beings. You have in mind human Uh traditions, not the things of God. Right. Mm -hmm. So what Jesus is saying is the elemental spirits of the universe are dictating what you think about me. So Mm -hmm. you're right. You have received from God a word, a revelation that I'm the Messiah. But what is in your mind when you think about that revelation it has to do with the elemental spirits, not with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Right, so the Holy Spirit is giving you this word, but you haven't yet interpreted it rightly. And you've interpreted a word that is from God in a way that is not true to who God is. And you've misinterpreted it because you are still being led along by the forces of the world, the forces that make the world work a certain way. 
and your thinking in terms of human tradition. You see the same thing in the book of James, right? That there's a wisdom from above, and then there's a there's a worldly wisdom that opens us up to all kinds of wickedness. And that worldly wisdom that opens us up, the, the devilish wisdom, is in fact thinking in human ways about the nature of things. Right? This is how things work, right? And an example of that would be the violence, right? That if I don't, if I'm not prepared to do great violence, then I will be at the mercy of people who want to take advantage of me. So right. that's just the way the world works, right? We live in a world in which people are killed violently. So I have to be ready to do incredible violence against them in order to protect the people that I love, right? That's thinking with the elemental spirits of the world. That is, in fact, the way the world seems to work. Right. right? Which is why this thinking is so easy, right? I mean, it's... It's right there, of course. Absolutely. And when we talk about being realistic, this so in our churches, when we hear the teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount in particular, that seems unrealistic to us because our minds and hearts are habituated to thinking with the elemental spirits of the world. This is not the way things work in the world. If you go the extra mile and turn the other cheek, you're going to be taken advantage of mm-hmm. because that's the way the world works, right? In in the workings of the world, the strong survive and the weak are preyed on. Those who are ready to do violence survive and win, have meet, meet with success or have security, whatever. That this is, that's the way the world works. And what the Psalm is speaking to and what Colossians, Paul's theology of spiritual warfare is speaking to is that you either live in the rhythms of the way the world works. You either follow the thinking of the world, the human traditions that have grown up around the experience of how life happens, or you're rooted in Christ. You you either live by sight or by faith. And if you live by faith, you're looking not at the things that can be seen, which has to do with what actually happens in the world and seems to happen for these reasons. You're looking at what God has done in Jesus as the truth about what is actually going on, right? That, that right. This, you're looking not at the things that can be seen, but at the things that cannot be seen. Mm-hmm. They can only be grasped by, by faith. And that's what we mean. That's the spiritual in the spiritual warfare, right? You're discerning something that isn't, isn't readily apparent, that, it, that can't be seen if you're just looking at the way the world seems to go and what, right. what normally seems to happen. Mm-hmm. Which so, affects, I don't know if I'm I mean, making this worse I, or better, but... Yeah. No, it is. Yeah, it's helpful. I mean, so, I mean, that it's not just big issues in terms of, you know, war and violence, but I mean, this is, this is all pervasive, right? I mean, I guess this is, this is why Paul says, what is it in Romans? Anything not done in faith is sin. Absolutely. Like it, this Absolutely. is, okay. Yeah, no, that's precisely right. So if you come to the end of this reading, Colossians 16 to 19, He's just made this point about what Jesus has done, right? how he has erased the record that stood against us, forgave us all our trespasses, mm-hmm. and nailed the record that stood against us with its legal demands to the cross. He's nailed that, that, that record to the cross. First Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs because it, it's nailed it to the cross. right? And in that, he disarms the rulers and authorities. He disarms the rulers and authorities. So what that tells you is what they were using against us is 
a moral code. So there's a record, a moral record. And this is different society to society, right? So it's different Jew to Greek, of course. It's also different ancient to modern. It's different, you know, across different languages, nationalities, ethnicities, and so on. But there's a kind of code that judges us as right or wrong, as fit or unfit, mm-hmm. as insiders or outsiders. And Jesus has nailed those codes to the cross, right? And in doing that, he stripped the powers of their ability. To, to dominate us, to demand our allegiance, to demand our worship, to demand at least parts of our heart. And therefore, Paul says, don't let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink, right? So to your point, it's not just about war. It's not just about torture. It's not just about laws related to abortion or related to marriage. It's, it's about the food on our table. Right. It's about the days we set aside as holy. Right. So he says festivals, new moons, Sabbaths. He's talking about liturgical calendars. Right. So things like celebrating Father's Day or celebrating Christmas. Right. These are holy days are days we set aside for commemoration. And Paul says all of those have to do with either the order of the kingdom of God or the order of some other kingdom. And you have to be careful, he says, not to let anyone disqualify you by insisting on you abasing yourself or worshiping angels. Now, I don't think the point here is literally people worshiping angels, although I'm sure that does happen. I think his point is these powers that make the world work, they're creatures. Colossians 1, they were made to be for Christ. And whether they're good or bad angels, whether they're leading you the right way or not, they're not to be worshipped. That's a human way of thinking that separates you from the head. Right? So he says, you, you're dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking, not holding fast to the head. So to kind of draw this in, what this looks like is patriotism. Let's say that you feel a kind of, I feel a kind of patriotism for our country, you know, for, let's just say, America in the abstract, although it's vital that that is an abstraction, right? That I'm feeling a kind of swell of attachment to an idea. Right. Right? And that should immediately sober us, like, wait a minute, like, whose America am I talking about? What am I talking about when I talk about being proud to be an American? Mm-hmm. Right? Langston Hughes America was never America to me. Right? What he's pointing to is America looks a lot different if you're Sioux, Kiowa, Apache, Comanche than it does if you are as you and you know you are and I am, you know, raised in white middle class evangelical middle American homes. Right? So America is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So if I feel a kind of swell of pride in being American, that may not be bad. That may not be bad. But the moment I start to give my heart in any kind of allegiance to that, that's idolatry. But even if it is in and of itself good, I can't worship it and I can't let it direct my worship. That's the point that Paul is making here, right? That this, these are the gods of this world. 
the angels, the created forces that make the world work the way they work, the way it works. They're not all inherently evil, but the moment we start to give them our hearts, the moment we start to to bow down toward those temples rather than to toward the Lord, toward the body of Jesus, that is the temple. We, we've made the very mistake that Psalms is warning against and that Paul is warning us against. And what that causes us to do in, in Paul's language is to be puffed up. Right? That's the, interestingly, that in Corinthians, when he talks about knowledge puffing up, but love edifies, love builds up, but knowledge puffs up. He's not talking about like theological education. He's talking about the knowledge that comes from being an insider in some world. When, when you when you get caught up in a system, and this could be you know an economic system, this could be a political system, whatever it is, if you get if you get caught up in the way that system works, it will puff you up. The only thing that's going to keep you grounded and attuned to reality is contemplation of Jesus, turning your heart wholly toward, toward Jesus. So I think that's critical framing for understanding what's happening in, in Genesis 18, what's happening with, with Solomon. So before we come back to that text, though, is this making a kind of, I mean, I know I'm compressing what would take years of conversation to really grasp into a few minutes, but just kind of what questions does that raise for you? Um, well, I, I mean, a few, but let me just kind of rewind just a moment and looking at the, the end of this, um, Colossians text, could, could you just, given what you've said, what does it look like for someone to try to disqualify or insist on that self-abasement? Oh, I mean, I think it looks like they want you to show allegiance to their gods, lowercase g, plural, to, to whatever it is, whatever system that gives them meaning as a precondition for worshiping with them, right? So to, to put this like as bluntly as I can, right? Like if if you feel that to worship at New Cove requires you to vote a certain way or to mm-hmm. feel a certain way about a politician or to reject a certain kind of way of being American like those are even when they're not inherently bad those are at best secondary and penultimate realities that don't and cannot demand our ultimate allegiance mm-hmm. so if if it feels as if you're being expected to bow to something other than Jesus and the Jesus enthroned on the cross then that's how you're being dis- disqualified. They're trying to disqualify you. And actually mm-hmm. what Paul is saying is you will end up disqualifying yourself. You will end up losing touch with Jesus the moment you start to care about those things. Like the moment that your Christianity starts to get defined by, you know, here's an example. I grew up, and it, this isn't only about politics. In fact, I think economics is far more pressing on us than politics are. Politics is noisy it's in our face but our the actual day-to-day experience of our lives is far more dictated by companies like facebook and apple and google than by the republican and democratic party even though that's just an example but 
I grew up in churches where it was openly said, often openly said, that it's not possible to be a Christian and be a Democrat. Like it's not possible. Mm-hmm. It's just it's not it's not thinkable, right? Yeah. And then I remember at one point I got invited to speak at this Episcopal church, and like it was Bloody Mary Sunday. Like they literally served cocktails in Sunday school. <laughs> right. So imagine like here I am. You know, I'm in my 20s at this point, like Pentecostal kid, foraying out into like a church I had been warned never to go to. And I've been asked to, to come and speak. And so here I am. They're having their cocktails. And I've been asked to talk about the problem of evil, which is <laughs> so funny. I know where to start, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm, sh- I'm sharing. And this was during i think the first iraq war i don't have my timeline exactly right but it was something related to war and all of a sudden i get confronted with this question from someone in the audience says i just don't understand how anyone can be a republican and be a christian right yeah so i mean this is kind of ah yeah like this is what we've done we've built worlds that work certain ways and how, how does that happen well it happens because our churches, and of course, I don't want to stereotype here. Not all Episcopal churches are like that, and not all Pentecostal churches are like the one I grew up in. Thank God. Yeah. But just as an example of what I mean, so the what we how does that happen? It happens because our churches become clearinghouses or socialization centers for gods of this world. So that the point is, you go to this church not because you're devoted to the Jesus enthroned on the cross but because that's the place where all of these forces, political and economic and cultural, get purchase on you. That's the way in which they shape you into being a quote-unquote good citizen, as they imagine it to be, right? And I think we, we have to recover this sense that we live in a world in which there are many gods. There are. Like, there are all kinds of gods, political, economic, social, all kinds of authorities that are trying to claim our allegiance, that are trying to force on us a kind of devotion. They want parts of our heart. They want us to be devoted to their ideas, to their their ambitions, to, to hitch our wagon to their star. And Jesus is calling us away from that because we can't live the life he's called us to live if our hearts are divided in that way, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think there's... Obviously, this invites calls for a lot more conversation and study, but I think it's really vital to, to recognize that's that and nothing less than that is what's at stake when when we're reading the news or watching the news, when we're taking in punditry, whether we like it or not, right? Whether whether we agree with it or not, all of this does come down to where is our worship oriented? Is our heart wholly given to Jesus and the way of Jesus or not? Yeah. Well, so if I may then, how how does this, how is all of this gospel? I mean, how is this good news? And what what do you see this having to do with our gospel text today, which is obviously about prayer? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it is, you know, Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray. And, you know, 
it's astounding what he does and doesn't say. Like how how little Jesus actually tells them to say in prayer. Right. Yeah. I mean that's yeah. And and of course everything hinges on he's including them in his intimacy with the Father, right? Our Father. Like stand with me, join in my prayer, pray, pray my prayer to the Father with me. And and it's it's simple. It's not simplistic at all, but it's simple. A, a kind of turning of absolute dependency toward God in assuming the deepest intimacy in that. And so you, you've got kind of radical dependency, deep, deep intimacy, and openness, trust, up, openness to and trust in God's day-to-day care for you. And part of what I think is vital about it is that it, it is about trusting God for today. One of the ways of getting at how the world works is that its timing works differently. It's mm-hmm. it's always right. forcing us out of the moment into a past or a future. In fact, like if you think about it, like the economically, we can't enjoy the moment. Like there's a certain set of economic pressures, for example, that are always pushing us toward retirement or toward are you going to have enough, right? Are you, are your barns going to be full and overflowing at the end of your life? So they're, they're like trying to make us think about tomorrow, think about tomorrow, think about tomorrow. And Jesus is saying, well, trust God for today, right? Which is again, not to say you can't have financial planning and be a Christian, but there is tension there yeah. because financial planning, op- that conversation opens you up to a whole array of gods and you have to know you're in their presence. Now you can still, sing Jesus praises in their presence and should. So it's not to say you can't live in this world. It's just, you have to remember that this world is a world in which the, the reign of Jesus is contested. Jesus Mm -hmm. dominion is, is being challenged and usurped by all these other gods. And that's true in terms of every, every aspect of our life, economic, political, social, whatever. So, that's he's teaching us to pray in ways that attune us to God and God's way. So if you bring that back to bear on the Abraham story, what's what's happening there is Abraham is praying and he's interceding for for these human beings to be saved from the pressures of the the cities of the plain, right? That this if you go back and read the text, right? All of this spills out from Abraham's hospitality to these strangers. And they say, you know, you, you get this kind of astonishing moment where God is pictured as having a dialogue with himself. Shall I tell Abraham what I'm going to do or not? Right. And when the text, our actual reading for the day starts, it says the Lord says to Abraham or said to Abraham, how great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So we're in a a realm, we're being told this story this way for a reason. Obviously, God does not have to travel down to Sodom and Gomorrah to find out whether or not the sins are what they are. But we're being told this story this particular way, so we need to read it the way it's told, not the way we would tell it ourselves. So it's being told to us as if God is having to learn, as if God is having to go to find out what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. And 
what's striking is the reason he's going down to sea is that there has been a great outcry. Like right. somebody is complaining to God about what's happening in the in these cities. Now, when we think about Which, all, you're right, already not the way we tell the story. Right? Absolutely, there's no so one when, crying out. Exactly. When we when we tell the story, one we assume Sodom and Gomorrah is utterly filled with wickedness. There are only wicked people there. That's the first mm-hmm. thing. Secondly, we assume that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is just sexual license, and in particular, homosexual license. Mm-hmm. Right. But clearly, the text is saying there is a an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, right, from people who are being harmed by it. Whatever is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah that is destructive for these people, that's what they're crying out against. Mm-hmm. Right. So God is not coming down because Sodom and Gomorrah is committing sin, sexual sins. Like that's not what's moved God to come. What's moved God to come here is he's heard the cry of people who are damaged by this. So I think, and this is one of the things that, that, and it shows our hypocrisy, right? That so many of us who are up in arms about what we perceive to be quote unquote homosexual agenda are dismissive about claims of sexual abuse in the Catholic church. And even more so in our churches, we don't take seriously the the possibility that in our churches, there is exactly right. Sexual, sexual abuse. Right. But in this text, God is responding to those who've been abused, whether it's sexual abuse or otherwise. That's what God is responding to. He's heard the outcry and he's come to see whether or not it's true. Mm-hmm. And it's then that the men in the text turn and go toward Sodom and Abraham is remain remains standing. Right. So what you get and the, the text jumps all over the place, right? You have three men, you get angels, you get the Lord with attendants. And so the angels or men turn and go to Sodom. And what's striking, of course, and this is not in the reading for Sunday, but if you go and read the rest of the text, juxtapose the way that Abraham treats them. When he looks up and sees that they're there, he rushes and, as we talked about last week, lavishes them with hospitality. When they get to the, to the cities in the plain, they're preyed upon. Right? They're they're They're... Lot shows them hospitality, but really only to protect them from the the ways in which the men in the city are are seeking to abuse them. Mm-hmm. And so the juxtaposition is not just about sexual ethics, although sexuality is a part of the conversation. But the emphasis is not on the fact that it's gay. The emphasis is, is on the fact that it's violent. Right? The, the, mm-hmm. And don't get sidetracked, right? I mean, read what the text actually says. Like there's a, this is not to say, I'm not commenting on anything other than what the text actually says, right? Which is that these, these men are met with violence and threats of violence. And, and, and then of course, you know, Lot offers his daughters rather than these strangers. But in the text for Sunday, notice what happens when the men go, the angels turn toward Sodom Abraham stays, and then he asks God this question. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose not. He's already said, you know, God, you're the judge of all the earth. Do you need me to tell you what is right? 
Mm-hmm. And now he's challenging God again. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Now, notice, within the city. Not, not 50 righteous who've left the city. 50 righteous within the city. Which tells you that Abraham assumes, and the writer of Genesis assumes, that it's possible for someone to be righteous and to remain in a place like Sodom. Yeah. Right. Abraham is not saying, well, they they wouldn't be right. They wouldn't be in Sodom if they were righteous. They would have left. Right. Mm-hmm. He's saying, suppose there are 50 righteous. Would you then spare the city and not sweep away the place, but forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? So not only is Abraham saying that it's possible that there might be righteous living in the city, but that God should forgive the entire city, not just spare forgive the entire city for the sake of these righteous. Mm -hmm. Again, not just don't destroy it, actually grace it. Forgive forgive the city. And he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Far be it from you. Now, why? Obviously, God doesn't need us to lecture him on rightness and wrongness. So why? Like, what is happening here? And we could, we don't have time, but we could connect this to the story of of Moses that I mentioned earlier, the story of David, Jeremiah, all the prophets. But what is it that makes the righteous intercede? As I've said before, like the fundamental difference between the sheep and the goats is how the sheep feel about the goats and what they do for the goats. Like they, they just refuse to be redeemed without them. So wh- why, is the, why is it the scripture tells us this story this way? As if Mo- Abraham or Moses or David, as if these men are more righteous than God. And I think the reason is, of course, not that they are more righteous than God, but that these stories are bringing to bear on us that there is a human being coming who is the righteousness of God. And we need to listen to him. So what you're getting in these stories is not actually a story about Abraham and the God, but Abraham and a projection of what God is like, one of the gods of this world, in which Abraham's humanity, his compassion, mm-hmm. his, the, the movement of intercession, that is revealed to be what sets him at odds with the gods of the world that are determined that, that are are not capable of that compassion. They, they, right. they're, they're not human, and therefore they don't think humanly. But our God is human. Our God is human, enthroned on the cross, and who is the friend of sinners, right? The, who, while we were yet sinners, died for us, right? That that God is the one who is whose guts are moved with compassion, whose bowels are are wrenched when He looks and sees that we are sheep without shepherds. And that's what we're seeing in Abraham. We're seeing Christ's likeness in Abraham. Like think mm-hmm. about the difference between Abraham and Jonah, two prophets outside the most wicked cities of their day. And yeah. Abraham is saying for 50, for 45, for 40. And Jonah is fiercely, fiercely opposing God because God, he knows God is going to have mercy. Now Jonah knows God is going to have mercy because he knows the story of Moses and he knows the story of Abraham. But then ask yourself, which of those men, Abraham and Jonah, is more like Christ, who's also outside the city on a hill, 
saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So I think the way all of that connects for me is this is the only thing that will set us free from these kind of allegiances to the gods of this world is compassion for the people the gods of this world are destroying. Like the moment we start to recognize, okay, if I give my allegiance to this, to this God, whatever it is, right? The God of the market, the God of nationality or of nationalism, you know, the God of an ethnicity, whatever it is. Like if I give my allegiance to a God, that's not the God who is Jesus, then I'm going to be destroyed. I'm going to be devoured. And the only thing that's going to liberate me is to share God's compassion for those who are being ground in the gears of the way the world works. And that's, that's what Abraham is, right? He's, he's moved with the compassion of Jesus for the people that are going to be destroyed. And what's, Striking in the text, what, I'll leave room for you to say something if you wanted to weigh in there. Um, no, I mean, I think, I, I think what I feel is just a sense of, you know, grief, mostly right now. I mean, I was talking to you just this week about being grieved, um, and I think uh, part of what part of what grieves me in some of the talk of of some ministers that I was that I was talking about is I guess a way to say it is just that, right. There's such a, there's a lack of compassion. And so to bring it into this story, I think some that are using the kind of language that I've been hearing lately, that's been grieving me would read this story and then read the destruction of Sodom and say, that's what the character of God is like. Yeah. And give no, no room for the possibility that maybe the character of God is revealed in Abraham. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that because how these stories work depends entirely on who you think they're speaking about. And if you think these texts are speaking about and, and are spoken by Jesus enthroned on the cross, the Jesus who whom Pilate kills and Judas betrays, then of course you're going to recognize that in Abraham. But if you come thinking that Jesus' ministry was a hiding of God's true character, right? That he came as a lamb the first time, but the next time he's going to come and kick tail and take names. You know, he's going to come as a lion and devour his enemies. Then you've already decided on a different God, right? So the text, of right. course, sounds different, right? But I think if you read what the text actually says and not just assume and you pay attention to what's happening in you when you're reading, when you get to the end and Abraham is pushing God, 50, 45, 40, all the way down to 10. And Abraham keeps saying, don't be angry. Don't be angry. Don't yeah. be angry. Right. And then, but finally he stops at 10. Where our hearts are drawn is why stop at 10? Mm -hmm. What if he had not stopped at 10? What if Abraham had had the audacity to say, for my sake, forget the righteous in the city. For my sake, will you spare the city? And that's what Moses does. Right? Moses actually puts God in a corner, so to speak. Right. Blot and my with, name out as well. Exactly. Like So what Moses does is even more intercessory than what 
Abraham does. So Abraham is saying, if there are 10 there, and then he stops, or at least God walks away. But Moses does not. He simply says, you know, I'm not, you're not, you don't get me if you don't take them. Mm -hmm. And I know this is challenging for us, but our simplistic readings of scripture are bound up with our compassionless engagement with our neighbors. Man. And we, we will, both of those things have to change. We both, we have to recognize that scripture is, is telling us something simple, love God and love neighbor, but not in simple ways. And we must be moved with compassion or we're not being moved by the spirit of Jesus. We're being moved by the spirits of the gods of this world. And that is the proof. Like the spirits of the gods of this world will, they won't stomach compassion for anything other than motivating you to do something vile. Like this is one of the ways in which you can kind of recognize bad spirits is that they will stir up indignation in you not compassion, but indignation at some wrong some group has suffered so that you then feel justified in doing wrong to the people who made those people suffer, which mm-hmm. creates the cycles of violence and retaliation and retribution that only Jesus can save us from. I mean, that what you just said, that Moses, you're you know paraphrasing, you don't get me without them. I mean, that's, that's God's word to us in the incarnation, right? Like that is, that's exactly who Jesus is, right? I mean, that is precisely who Jesus is. Now, what Jesus reveals is that God is not someone we have to talk into being merciful. Exactly. We, we imagine God to be that way. And part of what these stories are doing is helping us through the wisdom of the spirit, helping us to see that this is not who God is like. And the writers of these stories know that. I mean, that's why these stories are doing exactly what Jesus' parables do. You know, so when Jesus tells a parable about the unjust judge that the woman just keeps coming back to over over and over and over again to insist that he do justice by her, and finally he relents. And then Jesus says, you know, you must always pray and not think. The point of that parable is not the father is reluctant to do good, Mm -hmm. right? So these stories here are characterizing God in ways that are actually unlike God so that it will expose in our reading the lies we've assumed about God. That's how God is showing us who he is in the face of Jesus, in these Jesus-like characters of Abraham and Moses and David and so on. So I think, I'm in no way suggesting here that, you know, the text is misleading us. It is leading us out of deception, right? Mm -hmm. But it is leading us and it's leading us by forcing us to grapple with why is it that Abraham stops interceding? And what does it mean that Moses does not, that Moses insists, no, you can't have them without, or you can't have me without them. And how does that prepare the way or set the table for Jesus, right? The, The one who is the full embodiment of that. And therefore the revelation of God is determined not to be God without us, right? That God would rather not be God at all than be God without us. Mm-hmm. And Jesus shows himself to be the one who is not himself without us any more than he is himself apart from the Spirit and the Father. Man. And then I look at the end of this gospel text in Luke 11, and I mean, tell me if this is, if, if I'm going too far with this, but um, I mean, it almost feels a little bit like hearing what you've said, I almost want to read this, 
you know, if your child asks for a fish, will you give a snake instead of, you know, a fish? Don't you know how much more your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I mean, I feel it feels a little bit like you, you know what the elemental spirits would do and what they would give. Don't you know Absolutely. I'm better than that? Absolutely. Well, I think that's exactly right. And, and, and it works the other way too, right? Not only would they do that, like give you a scorpion or give you a snake, but also our God is so good that if we ask for a scorpion, he's going to give us an egg. And if mm-hmm. we ask for a snake, he's going to give us a fish, right? So the, he is better than we imagine him to be. And I think the, and that's always true. Like he's always better. No matter, mm-hmm. you know, eyes not seen, ears not heard what God has prepared for us. So any good thing we can imagine isn't good enough. What, what God is in terms of who God actually is and what God is actually doing. Mm-hmm. Man, that's good news, Chris. It is good news. I completely agree. That's good news. I completely agree. Well, thanks, man. All right. Well, yeah. Until until next time, if again, if there is a next time. Yeah, I hope so. Talk to you later. Daily bread. Daily bread. Talk to you. <laughs> Peace. Bye.